This is Alan Seaborn from Winning at Home. Welcome to In Progress, a podcast about faith, life, and how we grow. And in this episode, I want to follow up in some ways on what we talked about last episode of drawing near to God. And I want to talk about that less in a sense of the way that we understand ourselves moving toward God and more in the sense of having a more realistic and more accurate understanding of who God is and what he's like. And I want to do that by looking at just one verse from the book of Revelation. And it's the last chapter of Revelation, chapter 22. Jesus is speaking and he's saying, I'm going to be returning soon. And then in verse 13 of chapter 22, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's probably a verse or an idea, at least, that many of us are familiar with. We've heard these ideas before. Uh, and, you know, in the Old Testament, God would sometimes say that he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. All these ideas that are communicating the immensity, the hugeness of who God is and of his presence and his authority and his indwelling in this world that he created. And when Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, I'm guessing that for most of us, we're familiar enough with those ideas to understand that he's talking about two letters from the Greek alphabet here. Alpha is the first letter of the alphabet. By the way, beta is the second letter. That's where we get the word alphabet, alpha, beta. And omega is the final, uh, it's the final letter in the alphabet. And when he says here the alpha and the omega, there was a shorthand that many Jewish rabbis would use when they wanted to talk about everything in the entire world. And they would say from alpha to omega, sort of like how we say everything from A to Z. We're just saying everything, period. And, you know, as I was thinking about how to put that into context, I don't know if this is going to do it or not, but I was looking on my bookshelf. I have a Greek-English lexicon, and it's kind of like, uh, and I don't know, it's kind of like a dictionary, but it also has more of the root of these Greek words and points you to more of a depth of understanding. And this thing is written in such small type. It's like those, those little pocket New Testaments, if you've ever seen those, and how small the type is in there. It's pretty close to that small type when it comes to the font throughout the entire book. And the book is 2,400 pages. It's intense. It's when you pick it up, you realize like, whoa, I'm holding a pretty serious book here. 
because there is a ton of information from alpha to omega. And when Jesus says, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, he's trying to help us understand the immensity of who he is. And as I thought about that for a little bit, I realized that, and this is some of the stuff that we've talked about in previous episodes, that I think people reading this, people reading all through scripture 500 years ago, they probably had a much greater sense of the immensity of God. Because like we've talked about a little bit, they understood that God was the one who helped their herds stay alive and helped their crops grow and helped heal them or their children if they were dealing with some kind of an ailment. They also understood that God was the one who made the sun turn and rotate around the earth. They understood a whole bunch of stuff and they attributed most of the things that happened throughout their day-to-day life as being things that God did. But then, like, this is why I said 500 years ago, because then along came the scientific revolution, the age of discovery, and people started traveling the world and trying to identify different plant and animal species from all over the place. They came to this understanding by uh, figuring out telescopes and watching the heavens. They realized, actually, no, uh, the earth isn't having the sun revolve around it. Uh, The earth is revolving around the sun. And things slowly started to change. And now we have, you know, we don't think of okay, we need God to keep all of our food sources alive and we need God to help our children when they get sick because we've, I say we, but it's not me in any sense of the word, but people who are researching and studying the way the world works have figured out vaccines and they've figured out antibiotics and they've figured out greenhouses and they've figured out irrigation And they figured out how to make our world immune to a lot of the things that in the past people just had to say, well, that's God that's providing and protecting and covering over us in the midst of the craziness of life. And that way of thinking, uh, it's called the God of the gaps argument. And I don't know, some of you may be familiar with this, where you would have people that would argue for the existence of God because they would say, well, if it wasn't for God, you can't explain this or that or the other. You maybe have seen this video clip. It's a big, um, it's a big meme almost at this point among people who are trying to point out the ridiculousness of Christianity in a lot of ways. I, I don't remember. It was probably five, ten years ago-ish. I don't know. 
um, Bill O'Reilly had a atheist that came and was on his show for a brief period. And it wasn't quite a debate, but they were having a conversation slash argument, something along those lines. And Bill said to this guest, he said, well, I can prove that God exists right now. He said, the tide goes in, the tide goes out. It happens where it's supposed to happen, and you can't explain that. And maybe some of you hear that, and you're like, well, yeah, we can. It's the gravitational pull of the moon that's affecting the tides and affects the ocean, and and you get what I'm saying, right? That throughout history, a lot of people have used these kind of ways of thinking to make a case for God. That apologetics, I don't know if you've heard that term before, but it's training people who believe in God to argue from the standpoint of reason or from the standpoint of looking at the world as it is and trying to say, okay, because of this, there must be a God. And the reason that this way of thinking, this argument is called the God of the gaps argument is because God is just used as another way of saying, well, we don't really understand how this works. So it must be God. God fills in all the little gaps of our understanding. But the problem with this is as science advances and as people figure out more and more and more of the way that the world works and the scientific laws and theories that are governing the way things happen, then God begins to shrink and shrink and shrink. If you're arguing from this standpoint of whatever we can't explain, well, yeah, that's God just doing his thing. But then as these things start to have explanations, like I say, God just kind of shrinks. And that doesn't match up with the way that Jesus is speaking here in Revelation. And I think a big part of the reason for this disconnect is that we've been missing who he is and what he's doing in our world when we've gotten so focused in on arguing for the existence of God. Like we're doing him a favor when we're saying, no, because this happened, I know that there's a God. Because in Colossians 1, I want you to hear what Paul writes about Jesus. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. He says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. 
For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And in that brief paragraph, Paul doesn't make arguments for here's how we know God is at work because he makes the sunrise in the morning. Here's how we know God is at work because he and he lists something. He doesn't do that, right? Instead of saying, I know that there is a God because of X, Y, and Z, instead he talks about the immensity of who God is and of who Jesus is. And when we read through that, we get this sense of the, I'm struggling to not use the same word over and over again. I don't want to just keep saying immensity, but the hugeness, the bigness, I don't know if those are even actual legitimate words or not, but what Paul is saying here in this paragraph And what Jesus is saying in Revelation and what God is saying all through Scripture over and over and over, whether he's talking about being the King of Kings and Lord of Lords or whether he's saying he's the Alpha and the Omega, whatever big, huge title God is giving to himself and communicating about who he is to us, He's trying to help us understand that he's bigger than what we think. And in ancient Israel, when God revealed himself to Moses, he revealed himself and he said, I am who I am. And Israel, for the remainder of their time of writing about and talking about God, They were so careful that they didn't want to misinterpret and they didn't want to misspell or misspeak the name of God. They would not write the vowels that would go into God's name. And so probably a lot of you have heard this idea before that in the original Hebrew, when you read through the Old Testament, when you see the word Lord, and it's in all capital letters, that's communicating that the word that's translated there is this word that they were too, uh, not scared, that's not the right word, too reverential. They wanted to be so careful that they treated God's name with the proper respect that all they wrote were the letters, and when we put it into English, it's Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H. You may have seen it either way. And because we don't know what vowels went in there, and because the Hebrew language is different than English, there's some people think the pronunciation of that word, Y-H-V or W-H, may have been Jehovah 
or Yehovah. As you put in different vowels, it could look that way or sound that way. Probably the word that you're more familiar with hearing that translated is Yahweh or Yahweh. But I came across something, I don't know, it's probably been a year ago now, from a couple different sources within maybe one or two months, something that I had never seen before in, I guess at that time, 31 or 32 years of growing up in the church, of studying scripture, of going to college, of graduating, of being ordained as a pastor, and I'd never come across this idea before, even as I enjoyed reading and finding different new ideas about how we can understand who God is. And these two ideas that I came across in very short period of time is that maybe, or I guess a better way to say it is that some Jewish tradition says that those four letters, Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H, actually represent what it looks like as we breathe. And so if you try to pronounce this word, you can't pronounce it, right? Y-H-W-H. There's, it's like, I don't know what that is. But if you speak those four letters, if you say the Y-H at the beginning, it sounds like breathing in. And that V-H or W-H on the end, it kind of sounds like breathing out. And I don't know how well this is going to translate as I record this, but I'm going to give it a shot. So I want you to hear, I'm going to over-accentuate trying to pronounce a little bit as I breathe, but I want you to get a sense of what this would sound like. And that right there is breathing in and breathing out, pronouncing, quote-unquote, or speaking the name of God. So I want you to think about that as you go throughout your day today. That as huge and as immense and as all-present and all-powerful as our God is, as we see over and over and over throughout Scripture, at the same time, He's as close to us as our breathing. And I want to encourage you to be mindful as you go throughout today of who God is and even as He is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's as close as breathing in and breathing out. And when I really started thinking about that idea, I found that it was, one, really powerful, but two, 
really comforting, really peace-bringing. Because this God, who created everything, who, as Paul said in Colossians, by him, through, created through him and for him, everything, all things, that God is as close as breathing in and breathing out. That God wants a relationship with us and has made a way, like we talked about last episode, for us to draw near to him. But we can be reminded all throughout the day in as simple of a way as breathing in and breathing out of what it looks like for this huge, all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God to be with us. And if you remember, that's what in the Old Testament was prophesied, that when Jesus came and was born, his name would be Emmanuel, God with us. And I want to encourage you to use breathing in and breathing out as a reminder of that being exactly who God is and that being true every time we take a breath.